You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, his mother sews socks that smell. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLarge. <laughs> she also sews buttonholes that reek. And yeah. Actually, and your mother sews quite a bit of things, doesn't she? She does. She's a seamstress. She, she hems yeah. all my pants for my short-ass little legs. I got Tyrannosaurus arms and little tiny short legs. So yep. I have to buy all my clothes in like the special deformed circus performer section at JCPenney. <laughs> 27-inch inseam, folks, with a 36-inch 30, <laughs> waist. Do that math. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you told me one time you said your body proportions are that of a, a poorly drawn action figure or something uh, like absolutely that. Absolutely, yes, a poorly drawn action figure. It's it, When my pants are, are hemmed to fit, where most normal yep. people's knees are is where my shoes poke out. <laughs> You're like dwarf. I dwarf am like, from I am like dwarf, yeah. exactly, yes. So what's going on? How are you? Oh man, I'm all right. I'm uh, I'm coming to grips with the fact that there are some things about my personality that I, even when I try hard to change them, I just can't. I don't know if you've ever okay. had one of those epiphanies, but I have had one recently, and and now I'm at the point in my life where I'm I'm just going to sort of grin and accept this hardship in my personality and try and roll with it. Okay, I know what mine is. I talk too much, so I started a podcast where I can just talk endlessly. Uh, what's what's this part of yours that, that's your uh, mine is that you come to grips with? Mine is that I am incapable of separating media inspired by source material from the source material if I know the source material relatively well. So by that I mean okay. So in simple terms, yeah, if a movie is based on a book, but you've already read the book, the movie. Either has to be yeah. exactly like the book, or I'm a petulant jerk. Oh, this I've seen <laughs> a, a plenty of movies based on books, and the only one that comes to mind that I can think of that was like you know page for page was the movie Magic with Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. from 1975. Yeah, um, th- that book is almost it's like reading a script of the movie. Well, but I know what you mean. There's a bunch of them. Which one are you talking about? Like right now, what what sets you off? I had made I had made a vow a couple of years back when I watched the Hulu produced adaptation of Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller, which was a miniseries, uh, yep. and one of the books that I've liked since I was a teenager, and I've read it a couple of times, and I read it recently in in advance of watching Catch Twenty Two. And Catch-22, for those uh-huh. of you who don't know it, is a satire about Joseph Heller's experiences in war as a bomber navigator in Italy and the Mediterranean. And it's a, it, it alternates between being hysterically funny and terrifying uh, sort of chapter by chapter. It's really good. Yeah. And all of the satire, all of the satire is taken out of the miniseries, and it really focuses on character building and things that aren't in the book. Uh-huh. And a lot of the humor is gone too, so it sort of just becomes a war show, which misses the whole point. Okay. So anyway, yep. I said at that point, like, why do I put myself through this agony? This is fifteen hours or something. I'm never going to get back to just sit here and be yep. irritated by something because it's different than the thing I remember. Why don't I just enjoy the thing I remember and forget about it? And I was pretty good about that. I. I went back and, and, and tried to watch some stuff that was based on books and didn't make it all the way through and sort of smiled my way and was like, yep, you know, can't do it, so I'll, I'll just forget that the movies exist. And then I, I right. saw that Netflix was putting out another version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is one of my all-time favorite books. It's an anti-war novel that's written a, I mean, that's another That's an old movie, too. Yes. The book came out in 1926 and was made into a film and won an Academy Award in 1930. Made in 29, yep. released in 30. And was made again in 1979 with Richard Thomas as a TV movie, which yep. was very good. 
That's the one I remember, yeah. Both of those adaptations hold to the story that is in Remark's book. However, I feel a however coming on. The one that was made in 2022 deviates considerably from the original Mm. source material. And while I'm reading reviews of it it, after watching it, of people lauding its horrors and its, its nightmare fuel, blah, blah, and... And all I did for two hours and 58 minutes was grip my teeth and squeeze my hands <laughs> closed and stare at the screen and get more and more angry at how little of Remark's remarkable book was actually in the film. So either I can stay mad about stuff like this or I can accept the fact that I'm going to be this way forever and try and move on. Two examples that come to mind whenever you talk about books and movies mm-hmm. Um one of them was Forrest Gump, and I really, really, really liked that movie whenever it came out. Yep. Uh, it's been years since I've watched it, but it's a fantastic movie. However, I think they bought the rights to the book just so simply nobody would make a movie called Forrest Gump because that's all that movie has in common with the book. Yes. The book is a completely different story. Yes. Uh, you know, for starters, in the book, Jenny is chasing Forrest, and he's the one that's going around, you know, being promiscuous, not her. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, there's very, very little in common with the, the book and the movie. And another one was we had gone to see some horror movie and then there was a trailer for a movie coming out called American Psycho. I remember. And I knew about the infamy of the book and I knew the book existed simply because there was a misfit song. And I went out and I bought the book to read before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. And the thing that kept coming to my mind is how on God's green earth are they going to make a movie out of this? That book is something else. It is something else. I actually sort of like the adaptation of the book, although it, I was surprised it was PG-13. No, it was R. Was it really R? I thought for sure it was very it was yeah, small. No. It was, it was, no, it was R. It was almost X. They had to take out. Oh, okay, that's stuff. right. Yeah, they had to take out stuff to keep it from getting an NC-17, right? Because there's no there's no X yeah, yeah. Uh I remember when I was reading the book and being yeah. like, wow, this is like, this is really kind of hot. This These scenes are kind of, oh my God, he's eating her liver, you know? And yeah. like from one page to the next, it would just do this 180 degree crazy Ivan type submarine turn and jeez, yes. uh, you throw the book on the floor for a while, just leave it there, you know? And the film, yeah. the film captured the spirit of the book and the characters of the book really well and made it a good meditation mm-hmm. on the time that it takes place, which is the central core of the book, irrespective of how gross it is and, and really right. made it accessible. I enjoyed that. I thought that was a, a, a good adaptation of the source material. Because it captured a lot of the essence of why right. it was there. What I took out of the book and what I took out of the movie, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a big, huge metaphor of what is scarier, a serial killer loose in the city or a society so wrapped up in itself that it doesn't even notice. All right. So before we get into the whole meat and potatoes of the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. A lot of times bands will go through multiple names before they settle on the one that they get known for, uh, i.e. the new Yardbirds ended up becoming known as Led Zeppelin. Right. Uh, So there's a famous band that went through a couple of uh, different names before they settled on the one that they are known for, two of which that come to mind are Six Sigma and Megadeth. So what popular band were known as Six Sigma and or Megadeth before they became who they are? Man, this is going to be so hard. I don't, I don't know, I'm going to have to guess at this one. And the answer is not Megadeth. The so, answer is not yeah. Megadeth. Right. It's uh, the, the Metallica. No. So at <laughs> the end of the show, uh, I will give you the wrong answer. All right. So this is the week beginning December the 26th, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is indeed. December 26th, 1982. Time Magazine's Man of the Year, this is before they changed their the name Person of the Year, is a computer. Right. I remember that being, I don't want to say controversial, but controversial, I guess is a good word. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, because it was an inanimate object that was the Man of the Year. Right. right. That's really started the fear uh, and conversation about automation replacing people in the workplace. Whether you viewed it as a good thing, there'll be less work that has to be done. So people will have more free time or you view it as the negative. There's less work to be done so we can fire people so that there's less work, period, to be done. 
right? So there's these two different sides of the automation argument. So what year was this, 1982? 1982. All right, so that's 40 years ago, right? Let me tell you something. This illusion of more free time, my chapped balls, okay? (laughs) Because I have no free time. Matter of fact, when I do have free time, I feel like I should be working. Yeah, and that's the way it is. Like We still have the mentality that we work in a late 18th, early 19th century big brick mill building, you know, yeah. where we have output that has to be done. We have to make 586 woogie woogies every hour. Otherwise, we won't get paid, you know? It really right. isn't like that. But Time Magazine putting its pulse on the trends of the day or the most influential thing, or in this case, or person of the day is, is kind of an important milestone in that. It's the first time that the application of technology that's used in the workplace and the application of technology that's growing into the home are the same. Their uses might be a little bit different, but ultimately it's the same hardware. And in Mm -hmm. 82, if you remember like I do, advertising computers to home users is like, you need your kid to have this or they're going to fall behind and they'll never catch up. Meanwhile, computers had like... They were glorified game systems because app, running applications on a computer, no one had figured out what to do with them yet. I had a right. TI-99-4A. I couldn't do anything with it except for play Star Trek on it. Yeah. I had my Commodore 64, which admittedly I did do like my homework on like because I had a printer and stuff. I used to type out and print out my homework. Right. Which the teachers loved, you know, because it looked nice. Right. But there was no video editing and audio editing. Right. You weren't recording podcasts on it like back then. That's for sure. It was the technology without the right set of applications yet. It wasn't until spreadsheets became a thing that computing began to really grow in popularity in the business world. And it was what application made it popular for home users when it, that wasn't gaming? Uh, it was anything connected to the internet in like 1990, 94, right? America I, Online. I was going to but okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I mean, that's where, that's where it comes from, right? And it grows on the internet. So 1980 was, 82 was a really interesting year for, for time to, to, to pick this. I argue that they were 10 years ahead of time, but that's just me. As we know, the man of the year or the person of the year isn't always a beneficial person or a person that does good or is the best person or whatever like that. Because they've had, like, Hitler was a man of the year in, like, 36. Yeah, I remember Osama bin Laden was on the short list some, you know, in back in 2001, 2002. Right. And people like were losing their minds. Like, how are you nominating this guy for Man of the Year? You know, with what he did. It's like because Man of the Year is not exactly an accolade. Right. It can be. Right. But it's basically the most influential person of the year. Right. And the person who had like the it most- or not, Osama bin Laden influenced uh, a lot <laughs> that time. Yeah. I think that was partly a ploy to get him to come out and accept an award. Hello, I'm Osama <laughs> bin Laden. I understand you have an award for me as Times Man of the Year. And at that point, SEAL Team 6 just drops out of the ceiling. All right, moving on to December the 27th. December 27th, 1979, Sire Records releases the debut album from The Pretenders. Nice. Man, The the Pretenders were such a great band. Those first two albums, Pretenders and Pretenders 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there was an EP in there somewhere, too. But those albums with the original lineup were just so fantastic. And I remember watching MTV whenever, like, Mark Goodman announced that one of the guys in the band had died from a heroin overdose. And then not long after that, like, maybe a month or two months later, the other guy in the band died from a heroin overdose. Yeah, one of those. I watched a documentary about early years of punk in London where the Pretenders had more of a following before their first record came out. Right. They put their self-titled album together and were doing a tour in the States. And then when they said that, wow, we left London, it was the scene was great. There was a lot of speed around, but everyone was like really into the music. And then we came back from our U.S. tour and somebody had brought heroin into the clubs. And when we got back, everybody was gone. Everybody was dead. The whole scene was destroyed. Yeah, I told you a couple of months ago, I was watching the uh, the documentary uh, or biopic or whatever, bio miniseries about the Sex Pistols. Right. And, you know, Chrissy Hines worked at the, the the sex store, Malcolm McLaren's store. You know, she always wanted to be in a band with Steve Jones, but he was, you know, doing the Sex Pistols thing. And then she ended up, you know, getting together with the guys and, uh, and the Pretenders. You know, we're not talking about the, the the unfortunate deaths of James Honeyman Scott and Pete Farnder. We're not talking about the unfortunate yeah. deaths of them. I'm just talking about th- that first album. You know, the, everybody's going to know Brass in Pocket. That was like the big single 
but like Kid, there was an instrumental on there called Space Invader that was really good. Right, right, I think right. Stop your, I think Stop Your Sobbing is on that first album too. Tattoo yeah. Love Boys, which had a video on MTV that I had. That was my first brush with punk rock. Yeah, that that song has like a lot of punk influences, like all over it. Yeah, that's a that that whole album, both those first. The Pretenders albums with the original lineup are just fantastic. And I remember having Brass and Pocket was on the Rock album. Yeah, the Rock 80 album. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. That was my first like introduction to them. Yep. Uh, I still maintain that as of 2022, I have never seen Chrissy Hines' eyebrows, nor do I want to. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> she is 50% bangs. Oh, I did not know this. I'm surprised you haven't told me. The pretended song, Stop Your Sobbing, is actually a cover of a kink song. Yeah, it's Kink's tune. Yep. Yeah, I did not know that. Hmm. All right, what do we got for the 28th? December 28th, 1973, our twibbly goal, apparently, to rehabilitate the image of President Nixon... Uh, 1973, uh, December 20th, 1973, President Nixon signs the Endangered Species Act into law. Mm, Are you saying that if I pardon the koala bears, then I might have a chance to stay in office? Yeah, that's what we're saying, Dick. (laughs) Now it made it a felony to hunt endangered species, and it established protections for their environment, and it attached it to like the FDA and the Environmental Protection Agency, which he signed into law a year, I think a year earlier. Yeah, that was his doing too, right? Right, and did a whole bunch of stuff to sort of help stabilize. You're not going to have big piles of coal to kick around anymore. Look, I may like to steal notes from inside the Watergate Hotel, but I love water buffalo. Uh, (laughs) Water buffalo are wonderful, wonderful animals. So he's uh, definitely an interesting guy policy-wise. The more we talk about him, the more I want to go and read a biography or something and get a feel for more about what his legislative agenda was, because it seems like he'd be hanging around with on the Bernie Sanders side of the party. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a really strange time in America for politics. You go back like right before him with Johnson and then Kennedy before that, where the liberals and conservatives kind of like switch sides like all at once. I know a lot of people tend to lend credence to that with the civil rights movement, but I, I'm going to make the argument a lot more of it had to do with Nixon because Nixon was playing both sides. He was catering to the liberals with a lot of – and I'm, whenever I say liberals, I don't mean Democrats because liberals could have been either party at that point. It was very a neutral zone. But he appealed to the liberals and he appealed to the conservatives. He butted both sides of the bread. It worked out very well for him until, well, right. you know <laughs> – Yep, and until he's, no one can be mad at me now. And then, yes, everybody was mad at him. Right, until they didn't have Nixon to kick around anymore. It's a good thing we don't have kangaroos in this country. We really like Nixon around here, apparently, because we're not going to see another politician like him, probably not in our lifetimes, that, you know, really appeal to both both sides of the... Yeah, it's one of those, I don't even know, I don't even know that he did, but in reading his, in reading things like signing the EPA into law, signing the endangered species into law, signing OSHA into law in 1970. It's like, if those things came around today, it would be an endless argument and then nothing would get done. Right. You know? So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the way that the government just functioned back then before the level of polarization that we have now. I don't know. I don't want to talk about politics, man. That's not what we That's not what we do here. No, certainly not. F*** politics. That's right. All right. Anyway, so let's talk about something fun and hilarious. Uh, well, kind of fun, kind of hilarious. So on December 29th, 1992, an Illinois couple is arrested as they arrive home from their nine day, nine days, Jeff, nine day vacation <laughs> in Acapulco, <laughs> which is in Mexico. Right. Uh, they had left their two daughters, ages nine and four, home alone during the trip. And the police, yeah, the police discover the girls after they called 911 after setting off the smoke detector. Oh, that's, there's a flaw in every plan for that yep. kind of child care. Like, you can drill them, but eventually they're going to make some mistake, whether it's leaving yeah. the bagel in the toaster too long and tripping the smoke alarms or opening the door and letting in the serial killer. That's what happens. Right. I'll tell you, like, during the 70s, my father was on strike and my mother went back to work. And then the strike was over and my father went back to work, but my mother enjoyed working, so she stayed at work. So there was a lot of times, like, during the summertime, my mom would be at work and my brother and I would be home by ourselves. Right. I mean, granted, we weren't nine and four. We were a little older than that. Right. 
but my mom would give us like you know leave us like five dollars we'd get pizza and we were you know home by ourselves most of the day and let me tell you the door barely closed behind my mom and my brother and I were over there pouring rubbing alcohol into the bathtub instead of get on fire because that's <laughs> cool, you know. It was definitely different. I remember I wasn't a latchkey kid. My mom was was home, but there was a, a period when I was in middle school and my brothers were just starting like late elementary school years and or early middle school years, mm-hmm. where she got a job at the corner store and we have to stop in at the store at near the bus stop, say hi mom, and then we could go home, like yeah. go home, let the dog out, have a snack, watch TV, do your homework hang around for a while and a few hours later she'd come home and make dinner and then that would like be the day and i remember like even when we were younger there was a culture of like what are called latchkey kids whose parents were just at work and they just came home after school and were like hey you know i'm making dinner when my mother grew up in Fairhaven, mass her parents worked different shifts at paulding's mills so my grandmother worked all day my grandfather worked all night so he was home asleep when my mother got home from school, so might as well not have been there. So she and her brother had to like make dinner and get the house ready and prepare the laundry to go to the laundromat and all this stuff so that when the parents were together, they could eat and spend some time together before they broke off to go to their respective works. And that was it. So they sort of raised themselves. Yeah. And now you'll get arrested if you let your kid walk home from the store and they're eight years old. Yeah, I just saw a story about that, too. And like I live three houses down from an elementary school. I get out of work at 2.30. I got into the habit of getting out of work at like 2.45 just so I could avoid all the traffic congestion and parking right. around my house because kids aren't allowed to walk home from school. Right. They have to be picked up from by their parents. Right, right. That's due to the, the idea of law called in loco parentis, in lieu of the parents. Which is a weird law to mandate whenever like most families have to have two incomes just to survive. I don't know. That's, this is almost getting into a political yes, discussion. Yes, I know. Let's, let's break out of this yeah. and talk about something else. All right. What do you got for the 30th? December 30th, 1980. At the time, the longest-running TV show on NBC, The Wonderful World of Disney, airs for the last time. Do you remember watching The Wonderful World of Disney? Yep, absolutely. I remember watching that with my father. I remember watching it on Sunday nights, every Sunday night when I was a kid. And yep. whether it was showing old Disney cartoons, which they did a lot of, or yep. edited down for one hour length movies or pieces of movies or first looks at things like the black hole in that movie. Um, yeah, I remember that. I yep. watched it every single week. Usually right yep. after Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Oh, Christ on a cracker. I remember that too. Yeah. Yeah, I remember watching that with my father as well. Yeah, they used to show, like I said, the cartoons, which was the, uh, the parts that we always looked forward yep. to. And then you would see not so much the infamous Lemming one, but they would show some of like the animal documentaries mm-hmm. that Disney used to produce as well. I used to get mad when that would come on because I found that boring. I mm-hmm. wanted to see I wanted to see Donald Duck. But I also remember them having like other kind of like comedy things. Remember that one that you uh, we talked about before, the one with Kurt Russell? Yeah. What was that called? That was called Dad, Can I Borrow the Car? That was something else that they would show on uh, The Wonderful World of Disney. Mm-hmm. Now, like you said, at that point, it was the longest running television program of uh, you know, a record holder at that time. It was 25 years. Now, that title is arguably either held by The Simpsons or Monday Night Raw, WWE's Monday Night Raw. Monday Night Raw definitely has more episodes, even though The Simpsons started before. Right. So, like I said, you can make an argument for either one of those. And I think now... In 2022, just the way it's set up, just the way entertainment is set up, the way everything clicks and changes so Mm -hmm. fast and there's a bazillion channels plus a bazillion YouTube channels and uh, streaming services, there's an overload of things. I don't think we're going to see something make 25 years like that like ever again. I don't believe so either. Not that I'll lift it long enough to find out, but... (laughs) Pushing that number around right now is like, I think... There's the last remaining of the Law and Orders, right? SVU is still trucking along, and that's got to be pushing 25 years now. Oh, are they actually pushing out new episodes yeah, still? still coming out. I thought that was just in syndication. I no, think if no that kidding. show goes off the air, the world will end at this point. <laughs> it has to be on, otherwise the fabric of the universe will just tear apart. And Ice-T is still confused about everything. <laughs> are you saying this guy was murdered? <laughs> that's messed up, man. <laughs> So, going on to the 31st, uh, December 31st, 1990, the Sci-Fi Channel makes its debut on cable television. It's simply known as SIFI now, or Sci-Fi, 
And it's a very, very, very different format than whenever it first started. Whenever I saw that it was they were launching the Sci-Fi Channel, I was like, "That's got to be poor planning." There's not 24 hours worth of material to work with, really. Right. Well, they sort of filled the time with. They brought over some anime. I remember watching Cyborg 006 on that show mm-hmm. uh, on that channel. They had Mystery Science Theater for a while. They. I remember being was that on there. I yeah. remember Mystery Science Theater being on Comedy Central. It was on Sci Fi Channel first, or or after Comedy Central. It was it, was, it bounced from one to the other, and then it it, it oh, bounced see. altogether. Um, when it was announced that it was going to come out, I thought this is fan- this is exactly what I want in TV. It's all science fiction. And then when it was right. on, it was like, oh, it's like episodes of science fiction TV shows that suck, like The Misfits yeah. of Science or Manimal. Or, you know, oh, no. and like, yeah, nothing that was good or nothing that was very good. It didn't have like Doctor Who. It didn't have Blake Seven. It didn't have any of the weird foreign stuff that was fun. Like, uh, um, oh, said you get Mantis. Yeah, you get Man. You, you don't even get Mantis. Mantis was on Fox and Fox wasn't letting sci fi channel or anything. So you get a bunch of syndicated stuff like Land of the Giants. Yeah. Lesser shows from the Irwin Allen collection. And it was really tough to, to enjoy. They showed okay movies, but a lot of them were well, ultimately what we can find now in the public domain, like the monolith monsters. None of it was really good. There was a Saturday morning show, his name escapes me. Harlan Ellison, the short story writer and editor, was on it. And it was all about, like, not science fiction fandom, but about writing and reading and literature and uh-huh. and collecting. And it was really fun and in-depth. It was like a two-hour program. And then they got rid of that. Yeah, you know what was on the Sci-Fi Channel for a little while? WWE SmackDown. Yeah. Yeah, and people were saying, why is that on the Sci-Fi channel? That doesn't make any sense. And then I remembered my friend Jeff, I think you've met him, had explained to me a definition of sci-fi. Science fiction, it doesn't have to be outer space. It just has to be a world or a universe where the laws of physics that exist in that universe are specific to that universe. And I I was like, well, that's... That's wrestling. That's <laughs> wrestling. And I give you as an example, yeah. the purest example of that in real life that you can watch, which is the debut of the Shockmaster. <laughs> that is science fiction in a nutshell. Yep. So get but your like, sparkly it, Darth Vader mask and, yep. and join us. There are laws of physics that exist in the world of wrestling. For example, I can punch you straight in the face in the middle of a wrestling match and you'll barely even flinch. Right. But... If I do it to you outside of a wrestling match, you're down, and you're down for an hour. Right. God forbid you're wearing a, re- a referee shirt. Right. You can punch me in the face dead on in the in the middle of a wrestling ring, and not only will I not go down, we might become friends and have to punch someone else in the face just a few minutes later together. Right. Yeah, with with within the hour. With where whereas that happens outside of wrestling, and it's lawyers and police time. And oh my God, I'm still mad about stuff that happened 30 years ago. Are you right? kidding me? Yes. All right. So, moving on and wrapping up the week, January the 1st. January the 1st, 19... Happy New Year! Yes, Happy New Year, indeed. January 1st, 1998, the first really strict anti-smoking law goes into effect in California, and it bans smoking in bars. And the justification for banning smoking in bars is that the bartenders effectively are captive. They don't have the choice whether or not to be there for eight hours. Where you, right. you can come in and leave after an hour... And your exposure to secondhand smoke will be considerably limited, but they are stuck there for eight to 10 hours a shift and they don't have any Mm. say. Yeah. I remember that law going into effect. Eddie Izzard made a funny joke about it. He was like, no smoking or bars. And then next year, no drinking and no talking. (laughs) But we're so far removed from it now. The idea, just the idea of smoking indoors in a public indoor thing is like completely foreign. It it is completely foreign. And and believe me, as someone who used to love the demon tobacco, to imagine sitting down in a restaurant full of strangers and eating a meal, and while they're eating, lighting a cigarette and continuing to talk with people, it seems mind-numbing, mind-boggling now. Where at 20 years old, that was literally everything I did every day. Oh, sure. I remember, remember going to like concerts. You'd go to concerts at like the Providence Civic Center. Yeah. You could smoke indoors and all that. Yep. And then the lights would come up after the concert. All you just see is this like haze yeah. of just cigarette smoke. Right. Yeah. Remember like you could smoke walking around in the mall. Yeah. 
it's just it's amazing to think that the world has changed this much in in what is ultimately a very very short time. And yeah, look, man, I had surgery that helped me quit smoking. I have an open heart yeah. surgery. It's lots of fun. Uh, avoid it if you can. I had a nervous breakdown. That was that's what yeah. helped me. I, again, I don't miss it. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine going back in time and it being that I went. I was in uh, another state. Yep. And smoking was allowed in certain bars in that state, and I I found myself standing in there thinking like, this is insane. What world am I on? Have <laughs> I fallen through some right. some tear in the reality <laughs> matrix? You know. Because it just seems so unusual. I remember going down to Florida with my ex-girlfriend, and we had stopped off at like a McDonald's on the way back. Usually, I just get the food to go because I want to get home as fast right. as I can. She's like, can we just sit down and eat for this one? I was like, okay. So we go inside, and then she literally picks up an ashtray and shows it to me, and she's like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> we're in North Carolina. This is where they grow all the tobacco. Right, where so, the tobacco comes yeah. from. You expect to yeah, see yeah. that here, yeah. Very strange. There's some big lobbyists over here, yeah. Very strange, and it's a very, it's a weird, it's a weird culture that's changed. So it's, you know, it's generally not shown in films and TV anymore. And if you watch like Dragnet and stuff from the 50s and 60s, man, every single person in that show is constantly smoking. If you watch old clips of interviews of Gore Vidal and, yeah, you know Henry Kissinger, like everybody around them is smoking all the time. It's insane oh, the, to think it was like that. Yeah, like the Tonight Show and stuff like that. Right. Oh, for Christ's sake, watch The Exorcist. The doctor lights up a cigarette and starts telling the yeah. uh, the mother, you know, "Oh, your daughter's got quite the vocabulary. Yeah, you want a lot. You got a, you got a light. You know, right? Yeah. You know, I never thought I'd take up being a pulmonologist, but here I am. <laughs> starts blowing smoke rings. <laughs> All right, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. December the 26th, 1971, American actor and musician Jared Leto. Oh. You, you like him? You're a fan? Yeah, I like him. I, I like him in the stuff that I've seen him in. There was a film I watched not that long ago called The Outsider, uh, oh. where he played like a World War II soldier who ended up in a Japanese prison and became like a Yakuza guy. It was really well mm-hmm. put together. I liked him in that a lot. My big experience with him was Requiem for a Dream where he's fantastic, and he pulls off the New Jersey accent very, very well. Mm. And also, he was in American Psycho. He was in the New York Psycho movie, remember? He was, yeah. It's Paul Allen. And two very, very, very different characters. Uh, kind of shot himself in the career foot when he picked up that Joker role, which seems to be everybody's least favorite Joker. I haven't watched it, so I can't, I can't tell you either way. I thought it was an inspired choice, to be honest with you, because he's such a methody, unusual guy. But I thought it was fine. It wasn't. My, put it this way, it wasn't my least favorite Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and he has a band too, a successful band. He's the uh, the the singer for Thirty Seconds to Mars. Oh, see, they learn yeah. something new every day. No, I uh, a, a renaissance man. I, I think I think I'd heard that someplace, but I'd never listened to their music. So, all right, moving on. December twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six, Benjamin Eisenstadt, the original guy who thought of, you know, if we take this five pounds of sugar and we put it in individual tablespoon sized little paper bags, it'll make it interesting for people to stick it into their coffee at diners. So he's the guy that invented sugar in packets. Oh wow. And also, he and his son invented Sweet and Low, which is not sugar in packets, but it's artificial sweetener in packets. It also gives rats cancer, and it has a terrible aftertaste. And you can still buy it. <laughs> it is neither sweet nor low. kind of tastes like uh, like a dandelion stem. I think they call it sweet as a... Uh a curveball because it, to me it tastes bitter. It'd be funny if it looked just it, like it, you know, it looks now, it looks like sugar, still crystalline like sugar, but it tastes like two million Scovilles. <laughs> Sweet. Ah! Tough ad campaign for it, though. All right, moving on to the 28th, December the 28th, 1932, American actress Nichelle Nichols, who you would know as Lieutenant Ohura. From uh, the original Star Trek series. Yes. One of the foundational characters in American science fiction television. She is also the planter of the first interracial kiss, where she and William Shatner shared in an episode called The Arena. If I remember. No, it wasn't The Arena. The Gamesters of Triskelion. Ha ha. Pulling my, pulling my memory together there. This set the stand, a high standard for American actresses who are in science fiction shows. She was always competent. She was always forthright and could handle herself in virtually any situation, as written in the show. She was a very, very strong female character. 
and very rarely, if ever, needed to be rescued by anybody. The uh, the woman herself, Nichelle Nichols, by all accounts, was an absolute sweetheart. I have friends that had met her mm-hmm. at conventions and stuff like that. And I actually just listened to uh, an interview with her uh, that they put on a podcast I was listening to because she had passed away earlier this year. So there was a, kind of like a tribute show when they mm-hmm. would uh, talk about her. And yeah, she's we lost a good one. Let's put it that way. She was an incredibly strong woman and lovely by all accounts. All right, moving on. December 29th, 1800. Charles Goodyear is born. And if you don't recognize his name, you must not be somebody who drives a car. Yeah, I thought you would. (laughs) So Charles Goodyear uh, invented the patent, uh, the patented process of vulcanization, which allowed him and others to make rubber car tires. And vulcanization is the gluing process that grues layers and layers of rubber together to make a very hard and, and slow to wear, relatively soft and sticky but not sticky <laughs> tires for cars. For that, they didn't have them. Bought friggin' 600 some odd dollars in tires for my daughter's car. a lot of Vulcan money. It's a lot of, that's how much they were out of their Vulcan mind when they told me the tires had to be replaced. <laughs> and and I, I learned an important lesson. So for those of you who are listening who've never bought tires, kids, if you buy tires, go to your, find your like local garage guy that also sells tires and get your tires from them. Don't go to a big chain because the big chains will sell you whatever you think you want, whether they're good or not. So the last two sets of tires that I've put on my daughter's car, which I've done in 18 months, that's nine months and then nine months, have both worn out to the belts. Yeah. And my daughter's not driving 70,000 miles a year or 70,000 miles in nine months. She's driving about 10. And ultimately, it cost me two rounds of $800 each for tires. So when I went to my regular garage guy, I got way better tires, way less money with a much higher mileage rating. So go to the local guy. We now end hmm. this public service announcement. Jeff Dorigo, victim of tire sales of America. I'm also uh, a I've actually had very good service and whatnot with the local Goodyear place. So you're speaking Esperanto to me because I was like, what? I've had nothing but great, great service and everything over there. All right, so moving on to December the 30th, 1945, one of the four lead singers of the Monkees. Yes. Uh, Davy Jones. He was known as the cute one or the English one. <laughs> he was an English singer and actor. He, uh, he auditioned for the Monkees TV show and got the job. Prior to that, he had been the artful Dodger in the original London and Broadway productions of Oliver. Yeah, he'll always be... Uh... Davey from the Monkees to me, even though I think I've seen, I don't know if he was in the film version of Oliver now that I think about it. I think it was that the kid that was in H.R. Puff and stuff. I've seen pictures of him from the play, but I can't separate him from like Daydream Believer. Right. I remember hearing at one point he had actually had pursued a career in horse racing. He was going to be a jockey because of his small stature. But we've established many times on the show that we both are huge fans of the Monkees. Yes. Davy Jones was like the one guy in the band that wasn't even trying to pretend to be a musician. Yeah, he was the actor, actor guy for sure. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever watched like the auditions, like whenever they were doing like the screen tests and stuff yep, like that? I did watch their screen tests. And they asked Davy Jones, like, what kind of sound do you make? And he's like, I make a terrible sound. <laughs> yeah, he was, he's really funny. And I think that's yeah. one of, that's part of his charm. He was really funny and he was cute and unthreatening. He was he was so important to the monkeys that they they sort of tried to duplicate his character into into Star Trek. That's where Chekhov's character came from. Was to oh, be was really? to be the equal yeah, the Star Trek equivalent of Davy Jones. Happy birthday, Davy Jones. May you ever be pursued by the uh Marsha Brady's of the world to come to the homecoming all, dance. All he has to do is go to Las Vegas. Whoa. <laughs> all right. Moving on to the thirty first. December thirty first, nineteen fifty nine, American actor Val Kilmer who actually had a part in the recent Top Gun film. Mm-hmm. He's probably best known for Top Gun, Willow, Top Secret, Real Genius, and The Doors, and, and a million other really good films from the 80s and 90s where he seemed to be in everything. He was, this is a very controversial statement, he was one of my favorite Bruce Wayne's. Not Batman, mm-hmm. but Bruce Wayne. I thought he was my favorite part of that movie. Let's put it that way. He was um, he was the best part of that was movie. Was it Batman? Was that Batman Fall River? That was, that, was, uh, that's, yeah. that was yeah. Which turned out forever turned out to be one more movie for that for that. Yeah. 
So, but I liked him as Bruce Wayne, and I liked the dichotomy between him and Jim Carrey's Riddler. My yeah. weird, dirty, uh, guilty pleasure for his film catalog is The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was oh, right, an, ins- yeah. it's an insane, crazy, crazy movie with Marlon Brando and the world's smallest man and the guy that played Hellboy and Feruza Balk, and it was directed by a dude who ran off into the woods. And <laughs> the, <laughs> the movie's insane in the membrane. But he's really good in it, especially at the end where he's riffing on it and impersonating Marlon Brando. Speaking of the world's smallest man, January the 1st, 1969, uh, everybody came to know him as Mini-Me, but he was uh, known to his parents as Vern Troyer. Oh, yeah. I remember him as in the, there's a syndicated TV show with Bruce Campbell called Jack of All Trades, yep. which was set in like the colonial period in the Caribbean or something. And he yep. he played Napoleon Bonaparte in a, in a set of... Very inspired casting. He was very That's funny. Really funny. It was it was That's... really funny. The show never got any funnier than that joke, but that joke carried yeah. like three episodes. Yeah, he was on a reality show. I think it was called The Surreal Life, where yeah. they had a bunch of celebrities yeah, all living with, in a uh, house together. With uh, with uh, what's his name? Too legit to quit. With MC Hammer. I think he was on a later season, but yeah. Right. That's the one where Peter Brady was on there, yeah. and one of the new kids on the block. Right. Uh, but anyway, Vern Troyer, in a very, very, very funny scene, gets face drunk. He's going around the house on his scooter with with his height issues. He had a hard time walking again around, so yeah. he had like a little scooter that he had. Anyway, he pulls the scooter over into the corner of the house and just immediately starts pissing in the corner. And people are like, dude, dude. And he just keeps going, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right. Uh, uh He was really, 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 really drunk. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's actually uh, how he passed away, too, from alcohol poisoning. Oh, wow. I don't know how much he drank, like, in volumes, because he was so, you know, tiny, he probably didn't have to drink all that much to get there. The opposite of uh, Andre the Giant, right? He doesn't need to do 147 beers in one night. You want to have a drinking contest? No. I'm all right. I'm all right. He drinks Andre under the table. Right. Literally. Because he's small. Get it? I got it. I got it. I got it. Uh. Yeah, that joke was... uh... It's pretty low. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff. This was my pick for the worst song ever. Yes. But you know a lot more about this uh, this gentleman than I do. Tell us a little bit about our friend Wesley Willis today. <laughs> All right. Well, who is Wesley Willis? Wesley Willis is a musician from Chicago, Illinois, who is probably best known, if known at all, for this exact same pre-programmed synth riff and song where he rails about fast food. So the song that we're talking about today is called Rock and Roll McDonald's, but it could be any of the songs that he's recorded, like Rock and Roll McDonald's or I Kicked Superman's Ass. Or He got it kind of embraced by the punk rock community and had a 10 or 12 year career where he was playing club shows and concerts, had a record produced by Alternative Tentacles, was known by guys like Rick Rubin, who fortunately never recorded an album of him doing like Patsy Cline standards or some stupid shit that he would have him do. All right, let's play the clip let's so play, that yes. people can understand what we're talking about here. McDonald's is a place to rock. It is a restaurant where they buy food to eat. It is a good place to listen to the music. People flock here to get down to the rock music. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. Rock and roll McDonald's. All right, so the reason why I picked this song is it's one of the few songs I can play on the show because a lot of his songs are just vulgarities upon vulgarities (laughs) upon vulgarities. Yeah. There was no way this guy was going to get on the radio. Now, Wesley Willis started out, he's an artist. He's a very gifted artist. Uh, And when I say artist, I mean like uh, drawing. Visual, yeah. He He would draw these amazing like landscapes with all the uh, you know the focal points and mm-hmm. the scaling of buildings and stuff like that, the, I mean they're all like you know done in marker and stuff like that. I think it's pretty easy to tell just by listening to the very short clip they just played of Rock and Roll McDonald's that Wesley Willis is uh, atypical. He's he's not neurotypical. There's there's something 
There's something going on. Over oh no, there. he's yeah. He was paranoid. He had he had diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia. He had he was a yeah. schizophrenic. Yeah, he heard voices. And one of the reasons that he did the songs the way that he did was that it used to chase the voices away. He used to say that he made uh-huh. the, made the demons leave him alone. Right. So when he's singing like rock and roll McDonald's and or I kicked Superman's ass, it's all to chase away the voices. So like I said, I watched this documentary on him because. Uh, I wanted to know more about him. I didn't know too much about Wesley Willis prior to this show. All I remember is that in the 90s, there was a lot of people in my friend's circle that just tried just jamming Wesley Willis down my throat, telling me it was good. It's not good. But now that I got distance from it, it's on that same level as The Shags or D.D. King. Yeah. Or some of the other stuff, uh, you know, Barnes and Barnes, like we just played a couple right. of weeks ago. It's in that same level of just weirdness. Right. But I don't think my friends at that time got that right. part. I, I think they were just kind of like following along that other people thought he was weird, so they thought he was fun. Yeah. You know? I, I think that's that's part of it. I mean, I, I first bumped into him, uh, courtesy of the internet, with Rock and Roll McDonald's, and I thought it was, I thought it was hilarious. I heard some other songs that they were hilarious. But it's not the sort of thing that it's not like there's going to be a Wesley Willis concept album. <laughs> a tribute you know? band, yeah. yeah. It's so it's a novelty, and I like that it's a novelty and that he's doing his thing, and that other people have found it interesting enough to get him to go and use it to to earn himself some money to survive. I'm totally happy with that. Does it feel exploitative sometimes listening to him? Yep, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's it's a that's that's a weird part about it for me where I kind of felt like he was just like I said, being exploited. But after watching the documentary, he was a, I don't want to say a street performer, but he would like go out on the street to do his drawings and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and then try to like sell them to people and make a couple of bucks because he came from a real bad family. You know, he had 10 brothers and sisters, uh, including himself, and an abusive father and, and, and whatnot. He ended up living, like, in a couple of group homes mm-hmm. and stuff. So just to, like, get some extra money, you would do these drawings. And then he made friends with this guy who was in a band, and he used to hang out at his house and stuff like that. And then he started writing lyrics, and he was like, hey, I got I got some lyrics for a song. Uh, I want to play with your band. And they were like, well, we have a band, and we don't have time for this and all that. And they eventually, like, gave in yeah. And that band ended up becoming the Wesley Willis fiasco. Right. Which was his band for many years. And he got a following, and that was the band that like my friends used to go to see. Mm-hmm. And that synth stuff that we're talking about with like Rock and Roll McDonald's and uh right. Cut the Mullet and stuff like that, that came after the WWF. Right. Uh, the Wesley Willis fiasco. I watched a couple of live clips of him when he was close to the end. He ended up passing away from leukemia, uh, yeah. myelogenous leukemia, which is once you get that, it you know, don't buy any green bananas, you know? Um, right. And I watched some of like his last couple of years of concerts, like in the early 2000s. There's a couple where it clearly looks like he would rather be anywhere else in the universe than doing this show. Sure, and and it's that's the point where I was like, yeah, mm, uh, you know, I don't really feel comfortable watching. This feels like he's being put on display for th- whatever the venue is, you know, right, right. And it uh, it sort of soured me a little bit on the the idea of him more so than the music. So I went back yeah. and listened just to the music and like we were saying, he he was schizophrenic, and that's what his the, the voices in his head that he referred to as demons that ended up being the undoing of the the band, the Wesley mm-hmm. Willis fiasco. He didn't talk to his friend for a little while, and then all of a sudden Wesley Willis calls him up and he's like, "I want to record an album." Right, and that's when they started doing the synth pop stuff yep. or the synth uh, synthesizer programs. And what was another thing that was like interesting about him is when you hear him talk, he sounds like he's diminished in some sort of yeah. way. But he wasn't because they brought this up in the documentary and I felt stupid because the girl was like, I'm reading his lyrics and he has the word defenestration in there, which is <laughs> being thrown out of a, a window. A, a wor- <laughs> it's a word that I brought up as a trivia question some weeks ago because I right. thought. It was a too unusual word for you to know, but everybody knows it. Yes. Apparently. Even Wesley Willis knew it, you know? It's just strange the way the human brain can work at times where this guy was such a gifted artist. He uh, you know, had it had an ear for music mm-hmm. anyway. Yes. 
he was just I don't know. He's just an interesting dude. He was he was atypical, but but interesting in his own right. I and I agree. I don't apologize for my attitude towards Wesley Willis in the '90s because I still don't think this is good music, and I'm not going to make believe it is. Right. But I find the character of Wesley Willis very interesting, and I'll probably listen to a little bit more and and finish up watching that documentary just because... Like I said, I, I find the guy intriguing at the very least. I find the guy intriguing too, and I'll have to, I'll have to hunt the documentary down and I'll have a look because I haven't seen that. All right, so before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh, nobody here by that name. <laughs> call me Six Sigma. Yeah. There was a band at one time known as Six Sigma, and there was another same band also called themselves Megadeth. At one point, but they later settled on another name, a uh, pretty famous name, actually. What band was at one time known as Six Sigma and Megadeth? Can I ask the clarifying question? Oh, for f**k's sake. Yeah, I got Well, okay. So, like, there's 900 million billion bands between the two of us, right? If anybody's yeah. ever heard us talk in public, that's all we talk about. Give me a decade of where this band may have sprung from to at least whittle it down to, like, 100 million billion. Uh, they started in the 60s. They started in the 60s. Ugh, okay, the, who was the high numbers? The Beatles were the Quarrymen. The Rolling Stones were Mick Jagger and Keith Richards punching a duck. Was it something stupid like the Dave Clark Five? No, it was something stupid like Pink Floyd. Oh, I was off by like half as many years. All right, I was, I was going early. I was early 60s. You're like naming every band. I was like, oh, he's going to get it just by process of oh, elimination. No. Oh, I didn't even think of... I See, I, I think of them so much as a 70s band. Right. And no, they, yeah. no, their first nope. album came out yeah, in Yeah, they did. They burst out in the 60s. I was close, I guess. None. None it in a, a row. It was a band. Yes, none in a row. Oh, well. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, Twibbly is like candy. It's more fun when you share. What? No. Who writes this? That's not like candy at all.